and welcome to our podcast. We are The Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host Danny and with me as always is my co-host Nick. Hello! The premise of our show is very simple. For each week we have carefully picked two films which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find where their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, the golden age of Hollywood, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is... So that will be anything from uh, 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other person. So Nick, what have you got on for today? So today we're discussing Phantoms, um, uh, not like I said last week, not the Ben Affleck film of the same name. Um, uh, we'll be talking about we're talking about Phantom of the Opera, uh, nineteen twenty-five, directed by Robert Julian, and uh, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, directed by Brian De Palma, released in nineteen seventy-four. Um, so we'll start with. Phantom of the yeah. Opera, shall we? Shall we? Yeah, shall we? Yeah, shall we start with it from like chronologically? Start with yeah, the older the, one. Yeah, that probably makes sense. <laughs> cool. So I'll just give a quick synopsis and then um I'll ask you what you thought of it. Um, so it's based on Gaston Leroux's famous novel from nineteen o nine. Um, a mad, disfigured composer seeks seeks love with a lovely young opera singer. So Nick, what did you think of it? Um, so I've I've never seen the musical or any apart from the the second film we're discussing today. Um, I've never seen the musical, and but the the story is something I know I I I know well be, uh, purely through you know osmosis. <laughs> um, it's one of these cultural things that everybody kind of knows. Um, of course. You know I. As as much as one of my friends keeps telling me to, I'm probably never going to watch the Gerald Butler version. You um, should. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, where do I start? Like the film itself it, for for a ninety. It's what ninety. Just yeah. Twenty five. Nine. Yeah. Nineteen twenty five silent film. It's about a hundred minutes long, and this is the first silent movie we've had on here where I've. Nearly, I've, I find myself almost losing interest, and I never <laughs> thought I'd be saying that because of the fact that it's meant to be this universal monster. You know, it it was the it was the first one. You know, because of this, we ended up getting Frankenstein and Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein, and Wolfman, and you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, and these are all films that I I love, um, especially uh, Bride of Frankenstein and, and Black Lagoon, um. So it's it's kind of kind of weird that I find myself losing interest saying that um Lon Chaney senior is really f- is f- he has this amazing physical presence in the film um even you know he, even when he has the mask on you know he kind of just lurks around it, the way he's the way his build is the, you know there's something quite off about him um and then you know obviously when they he takes the mask off when the mask gets come off and you see his actual face and it's like it's almost like this zombie like death stare and you know he's you know some, something obviously it's obviously a credit to his his own uh makeup that he did himself you know um about how actually horrific he he looks and you know the reveal and the build-up is is you know superb uh mary philbin's reaction is is amazing and, and the way the look of Cheney's face when when he is uncovered is is you know is an iconic image um in in cinema um what kind of really interests me the most with this was that i didn't feel any empathy towards the phantom um like you, you know he said that he's, he's supposed to be an escaped prisoner on the run you know he's hiding in the catacombs of the, the, the paris opera house um, kind of makes me think that you know the phantom or you know eric as his actual name is he's not actually meant to be shown as a human um you know he's a is he's he's a, he's a monster but you know unlike say frankenstein for example frankenstein's monster for example i need to get that right um you know he, 
who has this empathy there is this empathy towards you know his acts and stuff and you you feel he's a tragic character a tragic monster as it were this it it was like he does these acts acts for love for love you know he's obsessed with with Mary Philbin's character Christine Day is it um yes. but i never got the the tragic romanticism there wasn't any between him and and the and the girl and i don't know if that's something that's picked up in other versions of the of the of the um a story um you know in in the andrew reba musical or the joel schumacher film um but you know we did get it in the film we're going to talk about next paradise uh, phantom of the paradise oh um, did we well we'll get on to that um <laughs> <laughs> um but you know i mean is that why an- that was <laughs> another another like example of like a character who has a physical um a horrific physical appearance but you feel the empathy and you you are so attached and you you know you feel with him is is in it's in david lynch uh david lynch's amazing the elephant man which i saw for the first time very recently um and because of john hurt's amazing performance in that you know his physicality not just if you watch it as a silent film which i think you probably could um the 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 physicality of john hurt's performance and the way his eyes kind of come through the, that makeup and the way he you know expresses himself or his physicality his movement and you know it's it's, a, it's a, you you feel sorry for him um and but the, with this there was nothing there that made me think oh the phantom is i should be feeling sorry for the phantom and here he's just a crazed freak um uh, but I don't know if that was the intention because I haven't read the original story and um, I don't know if, if they were to go down the whole route of, you know, feeling empathy for him and stuff, whether they're going to do, go down the whole, you know, Quasimodo route or something, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with the film in general, like, there's so, this kind of, yeah, sorry. No, no, I was just wondering if you, like, you know, were left slightly indifferent by the whole presentation as as a presentation of the film like i said i kind of lost interest in it i I was trying really hard to stay with it and i did stay with it i was just it was slogging in certain bits and stuff and you know the exposition just kind of plods along really slowly and i it wasn't grabbing me like you know it just wasn't grabbing me as much i mean the there there is a, is is quite macabre you know it's a fantastical edge to the film almost you know the paris opera house is this amazing carnival maze you know it's almost like a disneyland ride um you know and with a falling chandelier which that that sex that brick that bit was brilliant you know see the chandelier fall and and the rich people I don't see you don't think you actually see anybody die because I don't think they could get away with that in 1925 but you know the the implication is that that people died because they didn't move fast enough from a falling chandelier um so yeah i mean it 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 just didn't strike me that this wasn't as daring as it could have been i mean visually you know it's it's got this gothic edge to it especially in the catacombs but the story in like i said the story in the exhibition kind of just plodded along slowly and stuff but whereas i think that maybe a german expressionist director like you know fritz lang and i you know i've only seen the one fritz lang film m um which came out what six years after this in 1931 um you know he could do something much more with the material um you know and i've seen i've seen pictures and stuff and i've seen you know video uh you know stills and clips from various fritz lang films and various german expressionist films and I feel that there's something more that could be done with the Phantom of the Opera through that lens. Again, I don't know if that's something that's been picked up in, in other versions of the story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just feel that there's something more could be done with the story, um, which kind of brings me, would bring me on to when we talk about uh, Phantom of the Paradise. Um, so, yeah, I, I I don't know what you think of this original... Um yeah i agree I, I agree with mostly what you've said um it i mean it does not stand the test of time and if you think about it if you put it in context one might might argue that yeah well you know it was 1925 
and the, it was still they were still trying to find their own style in terms of like universal monsters and that sort of thing but if you think about it you know you have the doctor the cabinet of dr caligari 1920 21 and nosferatu 1922 so he could have he could have gone like you said it could have there would there would have been something done about it that was that would have been quite it kind of groundbreaking and interesting kind of feels as though it's on this edge of it's on the edge of the silent era and 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 the sound era really doesn't it? It, it that's how it came across to me like the silent films that i've seen it doesn't feel like those the like other ones we've spoken about whereas like it doesn't quite feel on the same wavelength as say you know i'm gonna say frank uh, frankenstein again you know uh, it just it, it just feels you know it just feels on that borderline the way how it is um i don't know I if think, you get what i mean i think part of the reason that you've picked up on this sort of disharmony so to speak is that it was directed by different people at different different parts of it were directed by different people and i think you can see that it kind of it's not as fluid as it could have been it slightly sometimes feels a bit disjointed um and i'm going yeah i've had i have had a few notes about like the the various directors that came to sort of work on this um i know the the imdb have four credits on this um it, it finally was i think initially it was supposed to be just um rupert julian but um it was he had a problem with with the with the crew and the cast so he stormed off set a few times um, and it's believed that some of the scenes were directed by Edward Sedgwick. Sedgwick. Um, um, but he is thought to have had a bit of a dark humor in his direction, and s some people didn't agree with with taking the film in that direction. I think I'm I'm not sure, but when I watched for for instance the the scenes where the two the new managers try to get into box number five and they go in there twice they go first time and they see him and then they go out and then they go back in again and he's gone i thought that the humor in that scene would could have been something that edward sedgwick did um sedgwick is of course known being for being buster keaton's longtime friend and collaborator having worked with him on on um spiked marriage um the cameraman uh, Dow Boys and a few other Keaton films that are best left forgotten. Oh, there she goes again, bringing Buster Keaton into everything. Well, he's connected with everything. <laughs> he's connected with everything. Hey, I mean, it's not my fault that Edward Sedgwick was actually one of the longtime collaborators of Buster Keaton, and he he directed some of this film. He's credited with it. Um, Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney is also well. Lonchain is also thought to have directed some some scenes, including the one where he's unmasked by Christine. Um, I'll talk a bit more about that scene in a minute. Uh, I just wanted to have a, a quick note regarding the location of this film. So, in the novel and the, like the story, um, the location is is the Opera House or um, uh, Palais Garnier, um, which has a dark history that is not as related to the Phantom. Although there have been some sort of uh, stories about the um, the Phantom, like in real life, I think the chandelier falling was an, an actual um, event that ha happened. Um, but I found this interesting article, which we'll share in in the show notes. Uh, when Ch when Charles Garnier designed the iconic opera house in the eighteen sixties, he included a special separate entrance for season ticket holders, which were called les abonnés which translate as subscribers. The building also included a lavish room called the Foyer de la Danse, located directly behind the stage. It was a place where ballet dancers could warm up and practice their moves before and during performances. But it was also designed with the male patrons, like the subscribers in, in mind. It was basically like a meat market. Um, it was, it was a place for them to socialize with and proposition the the young ballet dancers um so yeah there was a lot of like that going on and you kind of see it 
when Eric, when the Phantom is kind of grooming Christine, you don't, he's picked her out for her as her, his protege, but you, you kind of feel that there's something more sinister happening um, in their relationship. At the same time, I kind of, I, I, I know, I kind of agree with you, but I disagree with you when you say that he's more, he's not, um, he's more monster than human and he's not very sympathetic. Not as the elephant man would be, but I think as that has got to do with, I don't, I don't think Lon Chaney wanted him to, to be human. I think that's what he wanted. That's why he was so interested in in portraying him as as like a disfigured uh, more of an animal he worked very hard on on the makeup um and he yeah he he did it himself like everybody knows um but he was just yeah he i don't think he wanted to give him um humanity i just think he went he might have gone with the quite quite one-dimensional um character which is kind of a shame um because personally i don't think any uh, other other character has uh m many redeeming qualities including christine um so i think that's one of the reasons that the the film doesn't really work anymore for us um it's just that you know christine you see her as this nubile character who believes in the spirit like the what is it this, the angel of music um but at the same time as soon as she sees him she runs and she doesn't look back and she calls him monster. Mm. Which which is I mean, you, you kind of understand where she's coming from, but at the same time, she spent quite a few time quite a bit of time with her with him um trying to I mean, you know, developing a relationship. And you think that, you know, it doesn't matter what he looks like. Yeah, it's like she she can't she can't look past his physical appearance just yeah. knowing it for so long and like i think yeah to exactly up, to draw up the comparison with with frankenstein that the you know the film you know boris karloff's uh, appearance in that film is is quite is quite something and his physicality is quite something but it's obviously you know it's very inhuman you know it doesn't feel right yet you know this everybody knows the scene of him next to the river with the little girl and the little girl can see past the physical the physical appearance you know there is a touching moment you know that whereas like there's you know she she can see past the the physic you know the the horrifying you know monster whereas christine here is like oh i've spent lots of time with you you know you've helped me out with my career but oh right oh oh no you're you're horrible to look at yeah um, you're a monster um, yeah. yeah, which, yeah, I mean, by comparison, I, I would kind of tend to side with the underdog, which is, which in this case would, would have to be the Phantom. Um, but, you know, so I, would not, saying, I would not justify... You're saying, you're saying that in your position, you would then go on a murderous rampage and, and kidnap somebody and, and then... and then Can I finish my story? In a, in, a, in a hall of mirrors and... Yeah, no, carry on. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I was saying, I, I've, yeah, I've, so I would tend to, I mean, if he wasn't as, as disgusting in, in the way he kidnaps her, I would tend to side with him. But I mean, he, you, you don't justify his, his really, really like murderous rampage, psychopathic tendencies. Um at all uh, yeah it's just like it's it's a pity that he goes he goes on on this like yeah trap after trap after trap and he just like yeah i just want you to love me but how can you how can you ask that of her when she's just like when you sort of keep her a prisoner um at the same time she's she's she has no redeeming qualities at all i mean i've said this before but she doesn't feel sympathy and compassion towards him, even though he's helped her in her career. I mean, and then at the end, she even considers... So he gives her the opportunity to whether to touch the... What was it? The spider? The no, scorpion. The scorpion. The or the grasshopper. She even considers touching the grasshopper, which would blow up the whole building and kill hundreds of people. It's the same she, choice. She actually... 
I mean, why would it, you know? It just baffles baffles me, and I think that's quite unforgivable of her. Um, at the same time, you look at you look at the way the way the nineteenth century portrays people who had issues with their mind, with like mental health issues. Because basically, if you look at the um, letter that that detective found, he was arrested. He was criminally insane or something. Um, performing Blackheart, which I thought that was like really strange. Um, but everything I thought pointed to the fact that he was very, very badly treated his whole life. So he was, you know, what would you expect him to do, and how would you expect him to act when he's been kicked around his whole life? Um, so stepping up and helping Christine in her career might be just that one redeeming quality that he has. Um, but I don't know. Um, I know you've you've said that he he just like you don't feel sorry for, you you don't feel sorry for him and you just like yeah you don't feel any attachment. But I feel like I must say that he Lon Chaney, um, he I think he was relatively okay in this role. I think he was quite good. Um, I found a few interesting notes about his performances, not in not just in this film. Um, but you know he was known as the man of a thousand faces. Uh, he was uh, the son of two deaf mutes, so he learned uh, to be expressive with his hands. Um, and I think as this is a silent performance, um, his face and his hands are required to convey quite a lot. Um, and apparently, the look of the phantom was kept secret from the media until the premiere. And legend has it that even um, Mary Philbin, who plays Christine didn't know what Cheney would look like until the um, the actual scene where the unmasking took place. So I thought that was that that, that was quite a good good thing to. It, I thought it was a bit like Jaws without the tension because you you don't see the, you don't see the shark but you know it's there and you see what he's been doing and then the big reveal is quite frightening when you actually get to see it. And one final um, note from me regarding this film. So producer um, Carl Lemley um, commissioned the construction of a set of the Paris Opera House. Uh, because it would have to support hundreds of extras, the set became the first to be created with steel girders set in concrete. So for this reason, it was not dismantled until, until 2014. It was called Stage 8 of the Universal Studios. Um, it still contained portions of the Opera House uh, until 2014. It was, it was the wor world's oldest surviving structure, built specifically for a movie. It was used in hundreds of movies and television series, including the um, 1943 version of the uh, Phantom of the Opera, um, Dracula 1931, The Raven 1935, The Sixth Sense 1972, and Torn Curtain, um, Hitchcock's film, 1966. Um, yeah, and I think that's about it for me with regards to the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, I'm, I, I gotta say, like, its its reputation has been the first Universal Monsters film. You know, I, I had high expectations for it, and kind of a bit disappointed. You know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I it's just a bit yeah, just a bit disappointed. You... Yeah. I think no. I don't know what you expected. Yeah, no, I don't know what I expected either to be honest, but um I don't know, like maybe it's I like think you should probably yeah. I think you should probably see the 2004 version. I think maybe sitting be... down and watching yeah, watching is it who is in that version? Is it it's the Joel Schumacher one, isn't it? But um I think so. I'm just gonna have a quick quick Google. Um It is yeah, the I know I know for sure it's the Joel yeah. So it is the Joel Schumacher version. Uh two thousand four. Um but it's more of an adaptation of the musical. Uh, um yeah. and it is it is Gerard Butler in the role of the, in, in the title role. Um, I think it's much rockier version of, of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical. Which I which appealed to me, um, but it also owes a great debt to this version. I think. 
Um, I actually, I mean, I don't know what you expected of, of this version, but I, it is a classic. Um, I, I thought it was, it, they did an excellent job of, of like the use of shadows. Um, very, some in, very interesting close-ups. Um, to quote Norma Desmond, they really had faces back then. Um, and oh yeah, I found uh, this other interesting note, the bed shaped like a boat on which Christine is placed when she faints in the Phantom's Lair mm. was actually later used um, in Sunset Boulevard like as Norma's bed. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I have to see if some, I've, I've not watched Sunset Boulevard in a couple of years, so I need to get back into watching that. Yeah, that, that is a film on, on my watch, <laughs> rewatch list. I, I don't know. I I mean, I think it's still kind of a classic because it's just, it gives that story a, a face because you've read the story and you have, and then the face, you just don't forget that face. And yeah, I, even, I, though, I, even though you haven't seen the film, you know that face and you know the scene when, when she unmasks him. And I that think, is a classic. I think that's it, really. It's like, I have this expectation of what the film is um, purely through just osmosis and references in lots of different pop culture things, you know, in Simpsons episodes and, and you know, it's it's everywhere. You know, everybody knows the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, it's been done to death. And I, um, I have this built up image in my head of what the Phantom of the Opera is and it's seeing the original film the first film adaptation of the book it's just kind of like oh is that oh okay huh um so yeah yeah you just have to imagine that as a, as a 1925 audience um i don't know how many american audiences would have seen the early 1920s expressionist films like german expressionist films um, so they would have probably been very, very impressed with with the quality, the production quality of this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I read, and it was a lavish. Know. It was a lavish production. So I think, I think we, one one should give credit where credit is due. Yeah. No. I. I. I definitely. I definitely want to do that. And you know, I. I. I know the stories of you know people fainting when they see Lon Chaney's face for the first time and you know in, in yeah. that makeup you know like uh, it, it has got it has got merit where it's due and uh, if, in the context of where it came from and you know like i think it, it is it is really good for what it you know if you put it in that context it's just from my perspective looking at it i'm like there's something more that should be could be done with this story which brings me on to our second film Look at that. That was a smooth transition, that was. That was a lovely smooth transition. Um, so our second film we're talking about today is Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, came out in 1974, directed by Brian De Palma. Um, I've got a little, you know, plot synopsis. Um, in this rock opera hybrid of Phantom of the Opera and Faust, fledging singer-songwriter Winslow Leach finds himself double-crossed by the nefarious music producer Swan, who steals both his music and the girl Leach wants to sing it, Phoenix, for the grand opening of his rock palace, The Paradise. After Swan sends Leach to prison for trespassing, Leach endures a freak accident which leaves him disfigured and plans his revenge on both Swan and The Paradise, becoming the Phantom of The Paradise. So... Danny, what did you think of the Phantom of the Paradise? Um, what did I think? Oh dear. Right. So, uh -oh. um, we since we were talking about expressionism, um, I'll start with that. Uh, there was a bit of expressionism on stage during the the sort of like the climactic rock concert scene. Um, which got cancelled out by the next minute by the guitars slash machetes. I don't know what that was. Um, a, a lot of tacky glam rock. Um, that I just don't know how to feel about. I thought I don't know. It was in my opinion, it was a film that was a bit too much kitsch, which was taken to the level of art house cinema. 
Um, the music was good. I'm told it was composed by the guy playing Swan, whose name is Paul William. Is it? Yeah, yeah, Paul William. So he he wrote the music is very good. Yeah. Yeah, he also wrote. Um, uh, he also wrote the old uh, old fashioned love song by Three Dog Night, and he co-wrote Rainy Days and Mondays by The Carpenters, as well as loads of other music that you know. If you play and it, I you'll think... be like, you'll recognize that. And I think he won an Oscar for a film from for a, a song that he composed for A Star Is Born, but I'm not 100 percent sure. I'll have a quick um, quick gander on that. I think. Anyway, all around very talented guy. Um, but the film, I just wanted I wanted to like it, but then halfway through I remembered that I'm not a big fan of Brian De Palma, <laughs> uh, and I I realized why, and I understood why. It was I mean the music was good, the screen was just a bit too busy at any given moment. It was just too much happening, too many uh, feathers, too much bird. Uh, just like, I mean, just for for the record, I have a phobia of feathers, so everything that has to do with birds is putting me off. Um, I'm I've really never been sorry. a big fan of Brian De Palma's, um, so I kind of knew what to expect, and I expected a compulsory shower scene, which I obviously got because every Brian De Palma film has got to have a compulsory shower scene, just like Quentin Tarantino has to have a close up of feet. Um, I don't know. I, I, I ended up feeling slightly bored and not caring about any of the characters. Um, I mean, I understand what it is. I understand postmodernism. I've studied it. I just prefer it when it's done by the likes of Wes Anderson and um, maybe the Coen brothers. Um, there was a Busby Berkeley reference with the dancers dressed as birds. But then again, it made me think of the Big Lebowski and the Buzzy Bobby reference that was done in that film was much better. Um, Phoenix, um, the girl who is, you know, the, the singer who was supposed to sing the opera that was written by Winslow? Winslow, Winslow, Winslow Lynch. Uh, I just thought that her singing was m much more, more boring than the glam rock guys. Beef? Was it Beef? Beef. Yes, the guy with with the incredibly tacky uh, belts, which <laughs> again I I don't know how to explain. Um, yeah, I just don't know. It was just a bit too much testosterone, too much of everything just jammed in there just for the sake of it. Um, I understand what you know. I mean, it's supposed to be funny, and it it is funny, but at the same time, it's quite disgusting um like the auditions are, ju are just about girls looking pretty in their bikinis and nothing else no one wants to hear you saying no one wants to just just you know shake your booty and you've got an audition i don't know that's me so it's kind of safe to say you weren't you didn't you didn't get on its wavelength Not really, yeah. no. I mean, I didn't, like I said, um, I mean, who would understand? I mean, Paul, let's just say, so there's the reference of, of uh, Dorian Gray, right? Yeah, so um, you're, you're Paul, Dorian Gray, Faust, and Phantom of the Opera, pretty much. Yeah, so uh, Swan, played by Paul William, has signed a deal with the devil to be forever young um, and whatnot. Uh, and there's a, there's, a, there's a scene where he there's like a, a scene where he signs it and he he's young and he wants to be young forever but he just you look at him and he's like i don't want i don't if you look like that i don't want to keep looking like that it, it's I not something I... that you you would want to see for the rest of your life you, you don't want to admire him because he's not that good looking you know what i mean yeah but he's rich but i think that's probably the, the and, yeah know, i think that's wanna... the that's the joke isn't it yeah i mean you know paul, paul williams is is um quite short in stature um, yeah <laughs> he's um, no dorian gray that's for sure yeah he's you know physically he's not imposing or anything you know uh the the story is that De Palma originally did want paul williams in the title role 
as the Phantom, but um, uh, Paul Williams ended up saying, you know, there's only one guy for this, and it's um, uh, I lost his name, William Leach, um, played by yeah, where William Finlay. William Finlay, yeah. William Finlay, yeah. Winslow Leach, played by William Finlay. Um, so yeah, no, I, it's uh, so the, the, the you know the music is by Paul Williams is in my opinion it's it really quite memorable and it's legit really good. Um, yeah, know, but, I mean, I liked I liked the I liked the the, the glam rockers um, do, beef. I liked I liked the music sung by them. I thought Phoenix songs were boring. Oh wow! Okay, I, I, yeah. I, I think Jessica, Jessica Harper. I mean, this is her first first role, um, and I think she kills it. And you know, she no, she's on, very good. And you know, she goes on to to star in um, Suspiria, um, and she's kind of ended up being this actress who's forever doomed to be in cult films. Um, but yeah, no, I, I you know, the, the the music itself, like like I said, I, I think, you know, you've got the love ballads, you've got glam rock anthems, but you've got then surf music, like the Beach Boys, you've got a doo wop style fifties boy band, you know, at the beginning. Um Yeah, that was that was quite cringe. That was very cringe. Discount um John Travolta. <laughs> I think I think that's all I think that's all the point of it. I th- you know, it's like it's just shining a spotlight on the pop industry at the time. Um, I think, you know, I think that's kind of the point. And, you know, it it is a campy film. It is extravagant. It's exaggerated. But I think it's just utterly delightful and, and totally unlike anything that's around, in my opinion. Um, but that's just, most... that's just Brian De Palma. Yeah, no, it is just Brian De Palma. And, and, but, you know, like... I think it's obvious comparison piece is Rocky Horror Picture Show, a film admittedly I haven't seen, but (gasps) um, I correction I haven't seen it all the way through. I started watching it, but I just got got turned off by it. I ended up just feeling just I just why were it? That's how I felt about this film, and I kept thinking about Rocky Horror Picture Show, which was incredible. See that's that's really interesting. Like I I turned off Rocky Horror because I was not enjoying it. Whereas this I've you know I watched it for the first time last year and and um, finally got around to watching it and I could not shut up about it to all my friends because it's I think it's something really special. But um, you know like so like I'm trying to think of you know like there are references in the film. Um, you've got a touch of touch of evil homage with the car bomb. Um, there's a psycho yes. reference, but with a plunger, which is hilarious. Um, you know, De Palma is known for his Hitchcockian style, and you know he has references to you know you said the shower scenes and stuff. But you know, he, he kind of builds up that shower scene with the site with you know like in Psycho, but Beef gets a plunger to the face, which is just hilarious, and it's just yeah, I just love it. Um, you know, there's, there's a, there is a theatricality to the film, and this grand Gounod style that every actor is is, in my opinion, completely in tune with. They know exactly what film they're in. Um, the guy that plays Beef, Ger- uh, Garrett Graham, in particular, knows exactly what film he's I in. I loved him. He was my favorite character. I was just like, I want to see what belt he's wearing now. <laughs> it's like he, he says to him. He says to him like. Uh, it's just like the bodyguard, uh, Swan's bodyguard guy. Like I know the difference between uh, drug real and real real, uh, and he has that that craze that oh. <laughs> melted look in his eyes. Um, uh, I was actually, uh, I'm doubting that the director knew what was the difference between real real and drug real. Yeah. I mean, towards the end, it was when you know when when the wedding scene on the stage was like, yeah, that's just not happening it, like nothing is real <laughs> nothing is real <laughs> i think that's a good way of putting it um i yeah i mean paul williams was spoken about him you know i think he's his performance of swan you know he kind of gets the he's quite charming yet he's sleazy and conniving and 
you know, there's a darker edge to him. And I think William Leach, uh, sorry, I keep saying his name wrong. William Finlay, um, he is fantastic. He died a few years ago. Um, and his performance in this is, you know, it's eccentrically weird and unhinged. And he takes the idea of the fa the Phantom and he kind of, he, he, he just totally brings it within this, where this film is going, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, when I spoke about Phantom of the Opera and I spoke about how, you know, I, I made reference to this, where I didn't feel any sympathy to, to um, uh, the Phantom in that. Whereas in this, I even though Winslow Leach is a bit of a weirdo anyway, like he dresses up in drag to try and get into the thing and he's kind of got this weird stalker edge about him with Phoenix. But he's you kind of feel sorry for him because he's just he just wrote this music and he's not allowed to perform it the way he wanted to perform it and he's not allowed to you know he's not allowed to get credit he's been robbed of his credit and um he becomes like he becomes this i'm trying to think of the word to say he, he is a, i think he is a sympathetic figure um and you know he's he's framed for 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 drug use and he's stuck in prison and somehow ends up with metal teeth which i really that want to know that was quite sad really want to know the backstory behind that and you know i think there is a reason behind his madness you you see you see him no you see you see him beaten on like time and again you see him broken you see him a broken man so you see the system sort of messing with him and just throwing him chewing him and spitting him out you know yeah, and swan like flat out locks him in this room and then bricks over it like an edgar Allan poe story um yeah and you know like i don't know how he got out actually of that, <laughs> of that. um well you know, i think it, it, yeah i think he just becomes this superhuman yeah. anger it's quite interesting as well because like yeah. he, he signs the contract so like if he signed the contract and he can't die until in until swans you know contracts are destroyed you know does that mean then if he's locked in that he, yeah it would mean that if he's locked in that room bricked in that room and stays in there he will stay alive going mad inside that room locked up by swan yeah that's quite a horrifying but swan doesn't care no he doesn't swan does not care um, I understand that the uh, Swans character has been sort of modelled on Phil Spector, the film, the sort of music producer. I didn't know that, but that would not surprise me. Um, yeah. So, like, but the the film in general, uh, over the last few years, um, I say few years, in the last decade or so, it's kind of seen this resurgence. You know, you type in Phantom of the Paradise into Google, and you get like a lot of articles stating that the film is a masterpiece and with people saying how great and misunderstood it is and i think that's kind of a credit to um the fact that it was released on in america on shout factory on blu-ray and then over here on arrow it's kind of released on blu-ray kind of got a big special edition kind of thing with a lot of lost footage and what have you um you know and it's also fueled by filmmakers like uh, del toro um you got daft punk uh, have come out and said that their inspiration for their helmets comes from the phantom of the paradise um, and I think they did a um, album with uh, Paul William. Yes, they did. Yeah, um, yeah. Ran uh, Random Access Memories, the the most recent one. Um, and then you get Edgar Wright, who has come out and said on numerous occasions his love of Phantom of the Paradise. And when you watch uh, with the Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the Venn diagram between the Chaos Theater and Gideon Graves and Scott Pilgrim, with Swan and the Paradise Theater, is pretty much a circle um so there you know this film is much i think it's much more influential and i think it, it, it is i think it deserves the cult attention and the cult following that rocky horror gets if that makes any sense um you know everybody like it's like we said with phantom of the opera where everybody knows the story of phantom of the opera everybody pretty much knows those the i wouldn't say the story but they know the iconography of rocky horror um whereas phantom of the paradise doesn't have that um 
there's um i'm gonna link to it in the show notes but there is a fantastic breakdown of the film in cinephilia and beyond which is a fun in in any in any context with any film it is a fantastic resource for anybody with a love of film but they did a breakdown of phantom of the paradise with lots of interviews and um putting together various resources from here there and everywhere and a copy of the script as well so i'll link to that in the show notes i really recommend giving it a read um so yeah i mean do you do you have a, a favorite song at all like in the film is there any song because I, I i said to you you know make sure you stay watching through the credits because the song that's played over the credits in it is my my is my favorite song through the film yeah i so think I, that was i think that was that one was quite memorable yeah the last yeah. one yeah. yeah um which is called uh the hell of it uh i think it's called yeah the hell of it which is played over the credits yeah. um I've... no yeah post paul i mean as as a, as a writer as a songwriter he's, he's very talented yeah um, um you know the, the the song upholstery which is sung by the beach bums obviously you know the beach boys is 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 <laughs> It's like it. It is like a, a, a. It's a spoof song, which the Beach Boys, you know, is it, fantastic. And um, I think the song, the main song that you hear, Faust, um, sung by the Phantom, um, is I think so good. Um, uh, yeah, I just think it's the, the songs are the songs are amazing. Um, I one last question really is, would you have watched this without the podcast? No, probably not. Probably not. Like I said before, I do. I find I realize I'm not a big fan of Randa Palmer's style. Um, it's just for me, it's a bit too cluttered, a bit too busy. Um, I mean, I've seen I've seen Scarface because I love Al Pacino, but again, it to me it didn't it, it it didn't other than Pacino's performance, I didn't feel that film was that great i prefer the 1932 version for instance with paul muni yeah i mean with, but, with my, my but it's it's yeah it's it's a matter of taste i think yeah i mean my relationship with brian de palmer is that i've seen the films that you've heard of scarface carrie mission impossible and the untouchables and then last year i got around to watching phantom of the paradise i haven't yet kind of delved into his work which is more you know, uh, quote unquote, De Palma. You know, um, yeah. films like Blow Out, Carlito's Way, Dressed to Kill, Body Double, The Fury. You know, all these films that everybody watches are like, this is a Brian De Palma film. But, you know, I haven't actually got around to watching them. Um, I do want to though um, go through his filmography. Um, picked up a load of uh, DVDs of his, um, so I kind of do want to go through them um, because I, I do from what I can tell from talking to people there's somebody I know who's a big De Palma fan who's seen every one of his films um, <laughs> and you know it's it, it they kind of attracts this kind of following as it were um, you know so yeah no I'm I, I'm happy with we have but I mean, you know I'm always happy that I've managed to show get you to watch a film and, and get your thoughts on it uh, uh, you know a little bit gutted that you weren't you didn't get kind of caught up on its on its madness. Um, I don't think you expected me to really like this film. If I'm being honest, yeah, I probably didn't. But <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it. I think I think it makes a good kind of comparison with the original *Fan of the Opera*. Because if we were just to do, you know, the 1925 film and then the Joel Schumacher film, I think that just would have been a boring discussion. Whereas, no, yeah, this, that's true. At least with this, we've yeah. kind of just gone. Oh, you know, they're doing something different with the story because you know there's there's Faust in there, there's Dorian Gray, you know, you've got the Edgar yeah. Allan Poe stuff going on, you've got De Palma's own Hitchcockian touches, and as well as the songs, and the you know, I think it it deserves that kind of comparison with the original um, nineteen twenty five film. So no, um, so I think that's us done with Phantoms. Oh, so what have we got on for next week? Uh, so next week um, we what do you say like forbidden love I think is that the right way to right way to kind of sum up next week um, so we're talking about uh, Red Dust um, directed by Victor Fleming came out in 1932 starring Clark Gable Gene Harlow Mary Astor Gene Raymond 
I will be very honest, this is my first Clark Gable and Gene Harlow film, um, and I think it's only the second film I've seen with Mary Astor, so I'm quite looking forward to that, because uh, she was in The Maltese Falcon, am I right? That is correct. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I got one right. Um, <laughs> and we will be watching that with um, our second foreign language film, uh, In the Mood for Love, which came out in 2000, directed by Wong Kar Wai, starring Tony Leung and Maggie Chung. Um, I've wanted to see that in a long, long time. It Yeah, it pops up all the time on greatest films. E you know, even on, like, greatest films since 2000, you know, it's always in the top ten. It was, like, number... I think with the sight and sound list, it was really, really high on the sight and sound list that came out in 2012. Um, I we'll, we'll go into more... I will go into more detail about that it's kind of reputation next week but um i'm looking forward to talking about one car why and I'm, I'm actually looking forward to talking about uh clark gable and gene harlow with you um i am looking forward to talking about that as well because i've i've, I've studied this film um red dust for my uh master thesis so I, i'll have a few uh, sort of I'll, I'll i'll i hope i won't ramble on as much as i did on baby jane but there's a risk that might happen so you'd have to stop me that's fine. I, I mean, in the within the mood for love, um, I I really do uh, enjoy watching Wong Kar Wai's films. Um, I'm a big fan of his. Kind of want to watch uh, the spiritual sequel to this, um, 2046. After I've watched In the Mood for Love for in preparation for the podcast. Um, so yeah, no, I'm. It's I think it's next next week. It's going to be really really good. Um, so yeah, uh, Danny, where can we find you on the internet? So I'm on Twitter at Kino Joan and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler and on my own website superatomovision.com. I have my own YouTube channel and um, just type in superatomovision onto YouTube. You should find the two videos I've got on there so far. Kind of working on um, like a with a friend of mine working on a, a cut about boxing movies. Um, so kind of working on that over the next few weeks so keep an eye out for that exciting um, oh yeah uh, <laughs> we um we have our twitter uh at kinotomic um follow us on there spread the word what have you and uh, don't forget we have our email address kinotomic at gmail.com so please email us with any feedback any suggestions for movies anything you want us to cover uh we're more than happy to kind of listen and, and take anything into account um so that's it there yeah, yeah so that's a goodbye from me goodbye from me too thanks for listening